are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon and welcome, everybody. I'm so pleased that you could join us on our afternoon, Thursday afternoon, question and answer program. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and uh, I have a Bible commentary on the internet that some people find helpful. Uh, I also have been a pastor for many years. I was the director of a small international Bible college in Europe, and these are things that I've really enjoyed with my life and my ministry, and now I give most my attention to the improvement the distribution, the translation of that Bible commentary that I have throughout the whole Bible. And then I also enjoy putting out content here on YouTube. And part of what we do is we get together every Thursday. Uh, I make it whenever I'm able to. Sometimes I have a substitute in for me. We do it at 12 noon West Coast time in the United States. I don't know what time it is for you, but I'm very pleased that you could join us today. Uh, we usually begin with a lead question, but I just want to make an announcement here at the beginning. Look, today's kind of a special day. Uh, on the Christian calendar, by tradition, we would call this Monday, Thursday. Uh, it's the day that signifies when Jesus was having his last supper with his disciples, uh, commemorated on this evening, and when he was arrested. Uh, those are the things that we commemorate on this particular kind of Thursday. And sort of in light of that, because we are in the lead up to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, we wanted to do something a little bit special. And so we're going to have a book giveaway today. I'm going to give you a little bit more of the details waiting on, but today we're going to give away one of the copies of my book, Standing in Grace, to one of our viewers today. Again, hold on. A little bit later, I'm going to tell you the details on what you need to do to be a part of this giveaway, uh, to enter into it, because we're just going to give away one of them to somebody who's randomly chosen, chosen today, and I'll get back to you later for that. Okay, today's question, our lead question, is not one that came in by email. It's not one that was left over from the previous week of our YouTube live broadcast no, this is one just of my own choosing. I wanted to talk about this today. I wanted to talk about the issue, did the Father forsake the Son on the cross? Did God the Father forsake God the Son on the cross? Now, where would this question come from? Well, in Matthew chapter 27 and in Mark chapter 15, it records Jesus saying this from the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45-46. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this, of course, is one of the most stirring and dramatic statements that Jesus made on the cross. We sometimes traditionally speak of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Matter of fact, at uh, the church where I attend, Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara, uh, we're going to do a Good Friday service 
walk through the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and I'll be sharing on one of those seven sayings. But anyway, this is one of the most dramatic and one of the most stirring of those seven sayings where Jesus cried out, speaking in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what are we to make of this idea that Jesus was forsaken or at least made this cry on the cross? I want you to understand that I think that there are at least two wrong ways to understand this statement of Jesus. Here, here are the two wrong ways, and I'm going that these are the only two wrong ways. I suppose there's lots of wrong ways that some any passage, but here are at least two wrong ways to take this statement of Jesus. The first wrong way is this, is to say Jesus was truly and completely forsaken by God the Father. He was separated from God the Father on the cross in some true and decisive way. Now, I think that exaggerates the idea of those words of what Jesus spoke my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then I think that there's a second wrong way to take this statement of Jesus. The second wrong way is to say, hey, in that, he was just quoting Psalm 22 to let everyone know that he was the fulfillment of that psalm. Now, now to say that Jesus had no real experiential investment in those words other than a reference to Psalm 22, almost as if, and I know they wouldn't have done it in the same way, but just if we could take a modern setting and throw it back, as if Jesus would have cried out from the cross, hey, everybody, Psalm 22. No, I, I think that understates the idea of forsaken. Now, clearly, Jesus was making reference to Psalm 22. That, that's a line quoted from that psalm. But to say that that's all he intended with those words was to say, hey, everybody, I make reference to Psalm 22. I think that's stating the idea. Now, I think that the true idea of this is found somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it's all recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. When he said those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That statement came from the great pain and suffering Jesus experienced on the cross. Now, throughout his life, Jesus had experienced both physical and emotional in his life. It's not like his passion, everything connected with his arrest, his trials, and his condemnation. It's not as if that was the only time that Jesus suffered. Far from it. But I'll tell you, whatever physical and emotional suffering Jesus endured during his life, he had never known separation from his God and Father, I would say in any sense. Now, on the cross, in some sense, Jesus experienced some kind of separation from God the Father. There was some significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by God the Father at that moment. I think that that's just reflected in his words. Yes, he's making a reference to Psalm 22, but I think that that's not uh, that doesn't encompass all the meaning. Jesus was speaking, referring to something real that he was experiencing. Now, stay with me because I understand that can be exaggerated and I hope to, to, to bring it all together, but stay with me on this. You see, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England said regarding this, he 
said this, his one moan is concerning his God. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? Why has Judas betrayed me? These were sharp griefs, but this is the sharpest. This stroke has cut him to the quick. I would agree with Charles Spurgeon on that that what Jesus experienced on the cross was something that cut him to the quick and it made him cry out, yes, in reference to Psalm 22, but but those words reflected something real that was happening within Jesus as he was on the cross. And what did he refer to? Well, as horrible as the physical suffering of the cross was, and friends, it was horrible. This spiritual suffering, this of being judged for sin in our place, that's what Jesus really dreaded about going to the cross. This was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath that Jesus trembled at drinking when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, on the cross, Jesus became, as it were, enemy of God, who was judged and forced drink the cup of the Father's fury. And he did it so that we would not have to drink that cup. And I say we, I mean all those who put their trust in who the Bible says Jesus is and what he did to rescue us from the judgment of God. You could say that Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 3, 4, and 5 put it very powerfully, this idea of a substitutionary atonement, this idea of Jesus drinking that cup in our place. These are familiar verses, at least to many of you, but let me read them nevertheless. Here we go, Isaiah chapter 53, starting verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Friends, did you see those words? Did you take note of them? How over and over again that emphasis in Isaiah chapter 53, at least in those three verses that I read to you, that Jesus did that for his people. It says there, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. See, very powerful. He was our substitute there. And even as someone who's under the judgment of God feels forsaken, I think Jesus Christ felt forsaken on the cross. Now, that's the one end of it. Let me talk about the other end of it, because I think that we have something of a a paradox, something of a mystery here. At the same time, God the Father was more united with the Son than he was in doing this work on the cross. I want to call your attention to what I think is an important verse from the New Testament in understanding what Jesus was on the cross, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where we read this. For he made him 
who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a marvelous exchange that describes. Jesus, who knew no sin, he was made to be sin for us. Please note, it did not say that Jesus became a sinner, but he was made, as it were, sin itself. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God. Let me uh, read that verse to you again and just sort of make sure we understand what the pronouns are in that particular verse. Here we go. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. For he, did I say Romans? I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the great truth, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to him, as the scriptures say. You see, through all the terrors of the cross, God the Father worked in and with God the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The Father and the Son worked together on the cross. Don't ever forget that. I'll say that verse to you again. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now again, that's all the more amazing when understood in light of what happened on the cross. At some point before Jesus died, before that veil was torn, before Jesus cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. Father set upon God the Son all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved, all the shame, all the dishonor, all the darkness, all of it, every dimension of the cross, Jesus bore it in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the justice of God for us. Now, at the same time, God makes it clear that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Father and the Son worked together on the cross. Though Jesus was being treated as if he was the enemy of God, he was not. Even as Jesus was punished as he were a sinner, he was performing the most holy service unto God the Father ever offered. That's why Isaiah, can, and this is in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Friends, don't miss that. God the Father, God the Son worked together on the cross. You see, and of itself, just separated all by itself, the suffering of the Son did not please the Father, but as it accomplished the work of reconciling the world to himself, it completely pleased. Friends, don't ever forget that what Jesus did on the cross in putting himself in the place of guilty sinners that was the greatest act of love and self-sacrifice the universe has ever seen. Now, while I don't mind saying that Jesus felt forsaken of the favor of God the Father at the moment, there's a sense in which Jesus was never more in the Father's favor as he performed 
great act of love. Let me throw out to you another Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you can tell, I love the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. I feel like I've learned so much from him over the years. But here's another quote relevant to this point by Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, I even venture to say that if it had been possible for God's love for his son to be increased, he would have delighted in him more when he was standing as the suffering representative of his chosen people than ever he had delighted in him before. Now, I like how Spurgeon phrased that. He said, if it had been possible for God's love towards his son to be increased, which you could say was never possible. But if it were possible, it would have happened. Now, I want to say one more thing about that statement of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is entirely true, of course, that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, that great psalm of the Messiah's suffering and triumph. But it wasn't only a quote. In other words, we can also take it as a legitimate question. In other words, Jesus asked a legitimate question. <laughs> Why have you forsaken me? And if God the Father were to answer, and look, we're, we're just supposing here, we're, we're, we're just taking that question and pretending, so to speak, that there was an answer from God the Father. Why have you forsaken me? If Jesus asked, perhaps the Father would answer, well, because my son, you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners. You, who have never known sin, have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and to receive my just wrath upon sin and sinners. You do this because of your great love and because of my great love. That would be the answer to Jesus' question. That's why. And then perhaps, and again, Spurgeon and other preachers have suggested this idea that the father might have given the son a glimpse of his reward. That righteously robed multitude of his people on heaven's streets singing praises to the Lamb of God. Surely this is part of the question that Jesus just asked. So friends, we don't want to err on either side. We don't want to think as if Jesus was truly and completely forsaken by God the Father, as if he was separated from the Father on the cross. This exaggerates the idea of forsaken. But then again, we don't want to think as if Jesus was just quoting Psalm 22 to let everyone know he was the fulfillment of that psalm. Yes, he was doing that, but he was doing more than that as well. I think to do that understates the idea of forsaken there in Matthew chapter 27. I hope this helps you. I hope it adds to your understanding and the giving of honor and praise to Jesus for the great work that he did on the cross as you recognize it now this beautiful season. All right, we're going to launch out now on receiving the questions that have come in from the live chat. But before I do that, I do want to about our giveaway. T today, to bless someone during this Easter season, we're hosting a giveaway today, right now. The prize is a copy of my book, Standing in Grace. Folks, I, 
I like this book. I don't know if you'll like it. I sure like it. Uh, God was doing a life, teaching me a lot about his grace. And I would say that this book, I wrote it out of the overflow of it. If you want to win a copy of this book, we're going to give away one today. Type your location in the comment area. Country, state, city, we prefer. We don't need a street address yet. Get into the live chat or comments, whatever you have. Now, we hope everybody subscribed on YouTube or followed us on Facebook. But subscribe or follow, hit that subscribe button, of course. And we're going to announce on the video and the live chat entries are closed. It'll be about 10 minutes before the coming hour, before the uh, end of today's program. That winner is going to be randomly selected and going to be announced at the end of today's Q&A. Now, you need to be present until the very end of the show to see if you've won and to claim your prize. So if you do, then we'll just get in touch with you. You get in touch with us. Give us some kind of way to contact you. Email address, uh, direct message, whatever it is. We'll get your postal address and we will send this out to you right away. Now, if you have to be listening on our partner, TWR360, then please stop by our YouTube or Facebook page to enter. We don't have a way directly for our TWR360 viewers to enter. If you want the official rules, they're going to be posted in the description. And again, you're always welcome to submit your questions during our live chat today. So we're going to be happy to give away one of these books. I suppose this book. Why not? copy. My book, Standing in Grace. And I hope it's a benefit to somebody out there. All right. Let me click on over to our questions that have been today. And uh, here we go. From YouTube, Junebug writes, In light of Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, if I owe someone an apology for yelling at them, but want to wait a while to get my thoughts in a better place, will God not hear my prayers until I apologize? Uh, and then the reference is Matthew verse 24, which says this, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way, First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay, well, Junebug, I, I would simply say this. It may be that God won't answer your prayer. L listen, the Bible gives us several reasons why prayer might not be answered. I, I think it's a fascinating study. I, I did this years ago. Maybe I'll do it just specifically for our YouTube audience about reasons for unanswered prayer. It, it could be sin in the life. It could be impurity. It could be a lack of forgiveness. It could be a bad marriage relationship. Uh, it could be a failure to ask. It could be asking amiss. The Bible gives many reasons why prayer might be unanswered by God. Now, I think God is merciful. And sometimes if things aren't completely right, he'll still answer prayer sometimes. But you, we could almost say under no obligation to do so. So this is what I want to get at, Junebug. If you feel that prayers are unanswered in your life, you need to address this. You need to deal with this. You need to go before God and ask him, Lord, is there some reason? Now, listen, 
Sometimes our prayers are unanswered just because God says no. And you got to admit, no is an answer. Sometimes our prayers seem unanswered because God's saying wait and wait is an answer. But this is just what we have to deal with here. We have to deal with the fact that it could be that a lack of forgiveness hinders our prayer life before God. The New Testament, the Bible itself, presents that very real possibility. Hope that's helpful for you there, from our YouTube audience. Next question comes from our YouTube viewer, Char, who asks, if all prophecy isn't predictive, what other kinds are there? Well, Char, just think about it. Throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, etc. Many times they were announcing a future judgment or a future restoration or some other thing that would happen in the future. But many times just doing a call to repentance, a promise of blessing right here, right now. Didn't really have anything in the future. It just had to do with um, how things uh, God would promise to do in the immediate. So God can speak to his people right now in the sense of the prophetic and not necessarily with predicting anything in the future. Sometimes people say this, that we should understand prophecy as not so much being foretelling, that is telling of something before it happens, but forthtelling. In other words, telling the heart and the mind of God. Of course, friends, I'll say it again and again. If you want to know the heart and mind of God, don't go running after self-titled prophets. You seek him in his word. Seek him in his word. Now, I believe that God can and does uh, reveal himself and speak to people outside of the scriptures. I, I think that's actually clear, both from the scriptures and from experience. But, but I don't think we should seek after that. If we're going to seek the word and the voice of God, we don't run after a prophet. We read his word. This is his word made sure to us. And if God along the way happens to bring us a word uh, in and through the giftings of his Holy Spirit, well then praise the Lord for that. Question comes from Tunul Banan. Uh, asks, why did the disciples betray Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane and fall asleep when he wanted them to pray? Well, that's a good question. I think the best answer to that simple question, why did disciples, I, I wouldn't quite say that they betrayed Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, I, I understand what you mean. I don't think it's a bad word, but it's not the best word. Judas betrayed Jesus when he turned uh, Jesus over to the religious leaders to be arrested and eventually crucified under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. The disciples failed Jesus, no doubt about it. They failed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And why? Well, I, I think Jesus spoke to it. With compassion, Jesus spoke to his sleeping disciples and he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Those were Jesus' own words. I, I can't tell you which gospel that came from. <laughs> if I had to guess, guess that it came from the gospel of Luke, but that's just a guess. Jesus said, 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Friends, I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, Jesus is diagnosing the human condition. We do have oftentimes a willing spirit, but a very weak flesh, a very weak ability to carry things out. And so this is what we need to give attention to. This is what we need to say is, Lord, um, help me to bring the flesh under submission to you. Um, If my spirit is willing, my flesh can still let me down. Next word comes from Tim. Where were the disciples when Jesus was crucified? The ones present witnessing when John, when Jesus was being tortured. Okay, Tim, uh, I I would say this. Uh, First of all, the, the disciples scattered. They were in hiding with the exception of John, whom it seems that all the disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter seems to have followed Jesus and saw Jesus's interrogation before the religious leaders of the Jews. And then Peter ran off and hid himself. And then it seems that at the crucifixion, John, the disciple, found his way back to the place of the crucifixion. Because we know from the Gospels that John was present there at the scene of crucifixion. Because Jesus entrusted his uh, mother into the care of John. Okay, so the disciples scattered. All of them just hid out with the exception of Peter, who followed part of the way, and John, who followed uh, and met up with Jesus Christ. Now, where were they? Well, it could be that there were more than just Peter, who watched these things from a distance, able to relay these things. It could be as well, gospel writers learned of what Jesus underwent in his sufferings, not by their own personal observation, not that they were the eyewitnesses necessarily, they could have been, but not necessarily, but they spoke with eyewitnesses. One guy we know for sure wasn't there was Luke. Luke wasn't there. Everything Luke knew about what happened at the trial of Jesus before the Jewish leaders and before the Roman leaders and the crucifixion itself. Everything Luke knew about that, he learned from eyewitnesses. So, it may very well be that the apostles, the disciples, simply took the eyewitness testimony of other people who relayed to them reliably and say, at that point, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to communicate what Jesus went through in his uh, suffering and in his crucifixion. Okay, Andromeda asked a question. If the gospel is so complex and extensive, how can we share it with people in a few minutes when we don't have much time? Oh, Andromeda, what a great question. But let me just say, I'm going to challenge the premise of your question. Here's the premise of your question that the gospel is complex and extensive. Well, I'll agree with extensive because the gospel and all of its implications extend out in in uncountable ways. But the gospel in and of itself is not complex. Here's the gospel. 
The gospel is the message of the good news of what God has done for us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for us dying on a cross and raising from the dead. That's the gospel. Now, look, I, I don't know how long it took me to say words. Not very long. That's the core of the gospel, especially as the Apostle Paul defined it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, please grab a hold of this. The gospel can be understood simply. The core of the gospel is very simple, and just grab a hold of it. Now, the uh, the the implications, the outworking, the fullness of the gospel, to talk about all of the person of Jesus, to talk about all of the work of Jesus Christ, this would, would go on and on throughout all eternity. But the core of what Jesus did to save us, save us, that's very simply expressed. I'll say it one more time. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ, in who Jesus is, and in what Jesus did, especially what Jesus did in dying on the cross and in raising from the dead. So, Andromeda, it's true that we can go into great depth about the gospel, but that's the core message, and that's simply shared. Thank you for that question. YouTube question from Luciana, who asks this. When Jesus says in the end of Revelation chapter 22, that if anyone adds to these things and if anyone takes away, they will have consequences. Did he mean that about the whole Bible or just about the book of Revelation? Okay, now that's a great question, Luciana. And I would say that the most pointed application of the truth that Jesus said has to do with simply the book of Revelation. But by extension, because we believe that God knew that the book of Revelation would be the last one uh, written, the last one presented in the canon of the New Testament. We believe God knew that. By extension, I would say that it implies to the entire New Testament and the Bible itself. But most pointedly, we would say that it applies to the book of Revelation in and of itself, and only beyond that by extension. All right, before I get on to the next question from Horatio, I just want to say one time that we are having a giveaway today. We're giving away a copy of my book, Standing in Grace. I'm not going to sit before you here this afternoon and say, oh, it's such a great book. I think it's good. Other people have told me they benefited from it. I want one of you to have this book and to benefit by it. If you are part of our live audience, look, friend, if you're watching this on a recorded basis, sorry, contest is over. This is for our live audience today. This is what you need to do. You need to subscribe or follow us, whatever the uh, thing is. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook. Let us know your location, country, state, city, whatever you prefer, and then we will randomly collect those in a minutes before the end of the hour. In about another 15 minutes, we're going to close off our entries and we're going to select one of you. So somebody today is going to get a book mailed to them from me. Okay, let's go on with the next question from Horacio. Horacio says, 
Do you believe that the Feast of Trumpets points to the rapture of the church? Well, Horacio, yes, I do believe that it points to the rapture of the church. Whether or not the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. By the way, it seems so strange to me that people would deny that there is a catching away the church. It seems just very strange to me. As it just says very plainly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, um, starting here at verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Look, someday on his people are going to be caught up, raptured. That's just what it says. Now, I understand how some people don't agree with uh, the certain eschatological or end time scheme that some people say, well, the rapture is this, the rapture is that, it happens there, it doesn't happen there. I understand this. But the fact that there will be a catching away of the church is, hey, it just says so right there in First Thessalonians chapter specifically verse 17. Now, is it connected with the Feast of Trumpets? I believe so. If you match up other significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus, they seem to correlate with different feasts of Israel. There's speculation on how perfectly they correlate, but certainly Jesus was crucified right at and he was raised from the dead in connection with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the church was inaugurated at the Feast of Pentecost. I could go on. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this catching away of the church will happen on the day that is recognized as the Feast of Trumpets. That may or may not happen. Um, maybe our calendars aren't so... Maybe... What the Jewish people today regard as the day for the Feast of Trumpets isn't exactly correct on God's calendar. Maybe it's off by a few days. So I don't blame any Christian for having a bit of heightened expectation when the Feast of Trumpets comes around. But nobody, nobody should feel that um, it's disconnected. It doesn't happen on that day, but it seems to be that there is a connection. Next question comes from another YouTube viewer from CC. It says, if the demons work through people, then do angels work through people too? CC, that's a great question. We have no biblical evidence, if we want to say, of angels, angelic beings, possessing someone as it speaks of demonic beings possessing someone. We have zero indication of that from Scripture. And instead, it would indicate that God's people, those who are born again by God's Spirit, are actually indwelt by a spiritual power uh, and person, but is the Holy Spirit of God, not an angelic being. But please, don't make any mistake. Uh, the manner 
of the Holy Spirit's indwelling the believer is not after the pattern of demonic possession that we see in the scriptures. The pattern of demonic possession as we see in the scripture is violent, it's controlling, it's oppressive, it's it's manipulative, it subsumes a person's personality and, and the image of God within the work of the Spirit of God within a person does just the opposite or virtually so. So, no, we don't have the idea of angels possessing anyone, but we do have the idea that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Let's see. Waiting for another question. Maybe it just gives me an opportunity to just say simply, remember our giveaway today, Standing in Grace. I wrote this book several years ago, and um, I'm, I'm happy with it. We're working on getting it translated into German, and I would be open for it to be translated in other languages because this online Bible commentary that I have, it uh, is um, translated into many languages. And we're very happy that it is available for many, many people in many different languages. So uh, we like making that available. And so we just like to get it out to people that commentary in language. So we are very interested in the work having to do with other languages, but we um, we haven't done much serious work on translating this book of mine, Standing in Grace. If you're not our lucky winner, fortunate winner, maybe I should say, of our uh, giveaway today, uh, you can get this off of Amazon. You can, I believe, also get it uh, in a Kindle version if you prefer that. So that's that. I hear the chickens squawking outside. I don't know if you can hear that as well, but we've got a chicken coop not far outside of my door, and I hear the chickens making some noise. Uh, Maybe you can hear them as well. Let me look through here. Um, uh, SNL asks a question. Uh, Is it true? This is from our YouTube audience. Is it true that April is the real new year after the Bible? Um, SNL, not exactly. I'm not saying that we should adopt the same calendar that Israel had in the Old Testament. Uh, There's no command the nations, for the Gentiles, for the world at large to adopt this calendar. I understand and I respect that the Jewish people do the best they can to adopt that calendar. But there's no command to do so. And this is what I would want to point out to you. Uh, The Jewish calendar, again, to the best of my understanding, if I get some of this wrong, just be gracious to me. To the best of my ability, it's a lunar calendar. So it's based on months. And so things vary different according to our modern day calendar, our popularly loose calendar. What I'm just trying to say is, Um, The new year for the Jewish people is usually in April, but not always. It could come earlier. It could come in March. I don't know if it could come in May. But because it's based on a lunar calendar of a solar calendar, these things can be different. Okay. uh, Here's a question from Tim who asks, Did God divide the land when he divided the tongues in Babel? Um, Tim, no, 
We have no indication of that. Uh, he did not divide the land, but people drifted out towards different lands. We have a very interesting verse in the book of Acts. It says, and I'm paraphrasing the idea of the verse, that God has ordained a place and, and a, a, a role, a, a, a destiny, so to speak. I'm really butchering the idea of the verse here. But God has established these nations and established their boundaries. And so we can understand and say from this that uh, God did direct people all in his providence to different places. But those geographical divisions were not made at Babel. They were made instead at uh, as just in providence, as God worked those things out. Let me continue on a question from uh, Revelation chapter 13, uh, Tolo, Tolo Trianon from our YouTube audience is asking a question. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, Jesus, then why from the foundation of the world? Folks, because the sacrifice of Jesus to save his people, to save all those who would put their trust in him, his people, his chosen, the sacrifice of Jesus to do that was ordained by God from uh, before the foundation of the world. God knew what he was doing. Friends, the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, of course, but Adam is the one who bears the responsibility for it. Their sin and rebellion was not uh, a surprise to God. It already, if you want to say, factored it in. And it was as if the sacrifice had already, because it was so established in the plan of God that it was absolutely positively going to happen. So really, uh, I hope I'm getting your, um, your middle name there, Gabriel. Um, that is really better the idea. Um, let me look around here for another question. Um, Jesse asks, in Matthew chapter 20, what is the wedding garment he referred to? Uh, what is the significance of this and why was he not wearing the garment but called his friend and then was thrown out? Okay, Jesse, significance, most people take this and I would agree with this, is the wedding garment in Matthew chapter 22, we would relate that to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the believer must be clothed, so to speak, in the righteousness of Jesus, or uh, they won't be accepted into heaven. They, they, they will not be allowed to enter into heaven. And that's simply what that parable of the wedding feast is illustrating there, that we must be clothed in the righteousness of another, specifically the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, apparently, this was a practice that when people came to Party, they were sometimes, or maybe even often in that day, given a garment to wear uh, so that everybody had a nice suit of 
or at least the same suit of clothes as everybody else. And if someone refuse that garment provided by the host, it was a great insult. Jesus Christ offers his people a garment, a covering of righteousness. And it must be received and worn. We don't trust in our own righteousness, in our own ability to save ourselves. We look to Jesus. We also have a YouTube question from Rita, who asks, what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Rita, that is a great question. Um, It's a question we get from time to time. And Rita, I'm just going to give you my take on this. I don't see any difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You will find that phrase, kingdom of heaven, used most often in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, writing for Jewish sensibilities, oftentimes Jewish people, both ancient and modern, did not want to make a direct reference to God. Therefore, they would substitute words or ideas for the name of God or for even the word God. So often, instead of saying the kingdom of God, they would say the kingdom of heaven. They meant the kingdom of God, but they just used heaven as a substitute word for God. So I do not see any distinction. Nobody's pointed out to me any meaningful distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Okay, thank you for that question, Rita. Uh, Next question comes from... Uh, well, we've asked, answered that one from Tuliana. Here we go. A question from Verde, who asked from our YouTube audience. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, it says, fruits with seeds. Some Israelites say that mushrooms have no seeds, according to this verse, are forbidden. Not only mushrooms grows on nighttime, darkest, negative view, your view. Um, Genesis chapter 129, of course, it says there, and God says, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed. And to you, it shall be for food. Well, look, I I would just explain it this way. Maybe, maybe it could said that um, mushrooms being some kind of fungus, that they don't have seeds and they multiply or propagate some other way. Well, if there are Jewish people, observant Jews, therefore I won't eat mushrooms, well, God bless you. But I don't think anywhere in the scriptures does God prohibit the eating of mushrooms, especially those lovely wild mushrooms that you can find in the forest and that my brother and sister-in-law, brother-in-law and sister-in-law love to find in the forest in Sweden, those cantarella. Uh, mushrooms, beautiful, wonderful. Uh, it's Since there's no commandment against it, I think we can partake of such wonderful foods that God has provided for us. Uh, that is an interesting term, and if somebody felt convicted, well, I'm not going to eat it, then we have freedom in Christ or freedom in the custom to do so. Understand, there's no command in the scriptures to eat a mushroom because it doesn't propagate through seeds. All right, folks, we are about 10 minutes till We've had our last question. I am cutting off our contest entries right now. And in just a few moments, we get a word back from uh, one of our moderators and telling us uh, what is going to happen 
uh, with who we're going to give this book to among our viewers today. So I'll just wait for the answer back and uh, look through if maybe we have a thing. Um, Verde asks, I followed this channel a long time ago. I'm watching from Scandinavia. Well, Verde, you asked the question about mushrooms. Come on, you got to love those uh, wild mushrooms in the forest. I wouldn't be surprised if you're one of those who goes out and collects them. God bless you. Hello to the people from Georgia and Reno and uh, like uh, maybe Australia or New Zealand there. I couldn't tell the flag. Hesperia, South Carolina. Very, very pleased to see our global audience all around the world. Um, from Madagascar. Well, um, again, uh, your name is a bit of a challenge for me. Tolotranirina. I know. I didn't pronounce that very well, but let me just say, I am so pleased that we have a viewer today from Madagascar. Uh, we've got people from Toronto, Canada, and uh, Walvis Bay, Namibia. And uh, I've received a notice here from Deep Dive Discipleship from Medford, Oregon. You are our winner today. Congratulations there, Deep Dive Discipleship in Med. We're going to send to you a copy of Stand in Grace. Um, please email us. You can email us at this address, ewm at enduringword.com. One more time. This is for Deep Dive Discipleship, ewm at enduringword.com. You email us, you get in contact with us, give us your postal address, and we will send this book out to you. And I'll tell you what, I'll even sign it for you if you want to. If you want me to sign it to somebody, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Deep Dive Discipleship, then you just indicate if you want me to sign it to somebody, and I'm happy to do it. So, um, look, everybody, very pleased that you could join us today. I do sincerely apologize for the buffering problems that we're having. This is sort of torturous and mysterious to us. And uh, of course, it's, uh, we, we regret it a lot, but we're gonna do our best to see what we can do to get these things solved. And so, so pleased that you could join us. Welcome, we hope to see you again. Please have a blessed Friday and an amazing Easter Sunday. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. So, um, thank you so much. And congratulations to Deep Dive Discipleship in Medford, Oregon. You email us at ewm at enduringword.com and give us me to dedicate it to anybody in particular, and we'll get that out to you. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.